The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future with totally new sources of information that will change the way you run your business. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 and if you want to run with the Game Changers, you're absolutely in the right place. Today's buzz, well, this is IoT, Internet of Things, and we're going to take a very serious tack. Today, our buzz is the Internet of Things helps save lives, and what's more important than that? Let me read a couple of statistics here, very sobering. In 2011, the state of Indiana had the sixth highest infant mortality and child fatality rate in the U.S. It came out at about 7.7 per 1,000 lives births that year. I'm going to read a couple stats from a September 25th, just a few weeks ago, article online on nwitimes.com titled Indiana Infant Mortality Stats. And the article said, in 2012, 556 Hoosier babies, Hoosier is Indiana, died before their first birthday. Among the causes were accidental suffocation, serious birth defects, too small, too early, and SIDS, that sudden infant death syndrome. And the article stated that Indiana State Health Commissioner Dr. William Van Ness continues to beat the drum on the state's startling infant mortality rate and its causes. So now let me get on with my notes here. Well, Governor Mike Pence of Indiana also said enough, and he, along with Dr. Van Ness, said health care improvements are a top priority. How are they going to go about doing this? The governor is already leveraging the power of data analytics and our theme today, the Internet of Things, in a new biomedical center park in Indianapolis and launching a collaboration center right in his office and a lot more. Indiana is just one example of how visionaries around the world are using IoT, Internet of Things, to raise survival rates and boost healthcare outcomes. I have a panel of three experts who care passionately about this topic, and we're going to find out details about what's really going on and how the Internet of Things is part of this improvement in healthcare. First up, I'd like to welcome Paul Baltzell, CIO of the state of Indiana. Paul has sent me an interesting quote from Nikola Tesla. You all know Tesla. And here's the quote. Life is and will ever remain an equation incapable of solution, but it contains certain known factors. Paul, welcome. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I do want to apologize to everybody. I'm, I'm getting over a bit of a cough, so I will try and uh, control it while we're on the air. Well, we'll see if the Internet of Things can cure you while we're on the air, Paul. Maybe we can make that happen, too. So talk to me. Interesting quote from Tesla and relate that to our topic today. Very serious discussion. So what do you think, Paul? So What do you see? Um, that particular quote is very pertinent to me because <clears throat> with the Internet of Things and the, the uh, advent of the, the data analytics that we didn't have the capability to do a few years ago, right, the, the huge amounts of volume and veracity and variety of data, mm-hmm. um, we're able to um, get insights into 
particular things and what could occur. We may not be able to have the exact answer, and we'll never have a 100% solution, um, which I think that quote kind of points out, but we can ascertain certain known factors that will help us um, have better outcomes, right? And and so our overall goal is to try and use those known factors to um, Mm -hmm. better target our programs. Very interesting, Paul. This is such a serious matter. I'm sure it's nothing that the state of Indiana is is happy to see blasted in the headlines, whether it's in print or online. Can you give us just a little bit of history? How did it get to be this serious? How did you get to be the sixth highest infant mortality and child fatality rate in the country? Has this been going on, uh, ramping up over a long period of time, or has it been a static number? Any history? So, so we've really actually been on the back of the pack for decades um, and then when Governor Pence came in, he said, wow, this is unacceptable. Um, and we agreed with him, right, because um, I've spent the majority of my life here. I grew up in Indiana, and it's, it's kind of a, a sad thing to me that, that that's, that's an area we would struggle in because I feel like there's so many things we can do to, to help solve that, right? And typically folks don't think of IT as being the way to fix a problem like that. Um, but we think um, data analytics gives us an edge and an opportunity to actually be a game changer. Well, we're hoping that it will be a game changer, and I'm glad that uh, glad that people are on the case of this very, very interesting turning to technology, as you pointed out, Paul. We'll have a lot more to talk about with the rest of the panel. So thank you and welcome, and thanks for being a trooper despite your sore throat. And I know you, you sound great, by the way. Let's bring on the second panelist joining Paul. It's Charlie Brandt, the founder of KSM Consulting. And Charlie sent me a quote from John Muir. Here's the quote. When we try to pick anything out by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Charlie Brandt, talk to me. Welcome. How are you? Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, I am doing very well and uh, glad to be here. Thank you so much. So, John Muir, how did you pick the quote and how does it relate to our topic, Charlie? Um, well, I think that it is um, an interesting uh, quote and, and kind of reflective and connected to um, the discussion uh, today. Um, so uh, the world uh, continues to increase in complexity, and that complexity makes it uh, such that it is becoming uh, more difficult to make good decisions. And um, I've got a few, uh, a couple of interesting statistics here. Um, the uh, this is a 2013 stat. In the mm-hmm. previous two years to 2013, the amount of data that was created made up 90% of all of the data that had ever been created. So Mm. in the previous two years, 90% of all data had been created. Uh, So the data is growing in an accelerating rate. The second thing is our world is so interconnected now. And so when we look at problems within the state of Indiana in an isolated way like infant mortality, or we look at global issues that are going on, the world is connected uh, not only physically where we move about um, around the world, but also uh, connected via information and via the Internet. Um, Another statistic, in 1993, we had about 14 million users on the Internet. Uh, Mm -hmm. This year, we'll pass 3 billion users on the Internet. Uh, That has doubled from 2003 
2007, and again in that period, it has doubled. Uh, so the ability for us to be able to decipher the impact of a decision that we make around mm-hmm. an individual policy or program and what the impacts are, what the downstream effects are, how it's connected has become just incredibly difficult. I think that data analytics and the Internet of Things, the combination of mobility and being able to have information available to you, and then having the insights that data analytics can give to you can truly mm-hmm. be transformative in terms of trying to solve these problems. Very, very good oversight and good overview. Thanks for the stats, Charlie. It is a, a world very busy with a lot of data, and it's coming at us very fast. Good point. Uh, the quote was great. Absolutely perfect. So thank you. And let me welcome our third panelist today. It's Tim O'Malley. He's president of Early Sense Inc., and we'll find out a little bit about his company later on in the show. And Tim sent me a quote from Thomas A. Edison. Here we are. Many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. That's an oops, right? Tim O'Malley, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing great, Bonnie. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So talk to me about this quote, Edison, always, always bun mo, good words, and relate it to our topic, please. Well, I think, you know, my, my career has been spent in medical technology, and I've seen over the past 30 years um, a, a lot of technology that <clears throat> was created, was you know, tested in the market, was even brought to market, uh, but for a lot of different reasons didn't end up being successful. And I think some of that has to do with, you know, people not planning appropriately. A lot of it may have to do with market acceptance and timing. Uh, But I think that um, persistence is very key in trying to continue to get good, uh, reliable, uh, usable technology out into the markets. And it's not just applicable, obviously, to medical technology, but I've seen that firsthand in my career over the past 30 years. Tim, let me ask you a question. It, it obviously takes a team. It takes somebody like Governor Pence and Dr. Van Ness and, and Paul Baltzell, the CIO of State of Indiana, to say, hey, we got to stop this. We have to do something. Let's put data to use. Let's put a team of people together. Who are the right people? Is it a combination of vendors and combination of elected officials? How do you assemble a team? Just briefly, and, and we can cover this later on in the show, but briefly, how do you put the right mindsets together along with the right technology to say, this is the year we turn back the bad numbers. Any thoughts on that, Tim? Yeah, I think, you know, especially when you're talking about something so, you know, crucial as infant mortality or even infant well-being, you know, if you take mm-hmm. it to a little lesser degree, um, I think the, the, the goal has got to be first and foremost on everybody's agenda. Um, and it can't be tainted by anything that would be a side agenda in any way, shape, or form. And I think that the people that are working on this uh, deserve a lot of credit because it's a it's a hugely critical issue, and it's an issue that, you know, in today's world there is technology both within medicine, there's technology within the Internet of Things, there's future technologies that I, I think will definitely help in getting data collected quickly and using things like benchmark data and even genetics to look at how you can possibly curve uh, some of the trends in infant mortality and, and, frankly, get more to a point where you're preventative and not necessarily reactive. And I think that, you know, in our healthcare system in the country and, and generally how we've looked at healthcare, uh, it's been more of a reactionary kind of response. 
Mm-hmm. And I think as we go forward, we're going to see much more proactive measures uh, overall, both in preventative measures as well as you know treatment measures that are that are being looked at. Very encouraging. Thank you, Tim. I, I want to circle back to Paul Baltzell for a moment uh, before we go to What's in Your Cup today, which is a storytelling feature of our show. Uh, Paul, I can imagine possibly that other states are looking at Indiana now and saying, well, if you had the sixth highest infant mortality rate in 2011, somebody had the fifth highest and the fourth and the third, and somebody topped out at number one. OMG, really? I don't know if they're talking about it, but have you been approached by other states, other g- local governments? to say, we want to see what Indiana is doing. This sounds very proactive, as Tim O'Malley just said. Paul, any thoughts on that? So uh, we actually have, uh, the, the state CIO community is actually very tight-knit because there's, there's only 50 of us as well as a few from territories. Um, so we kind of tend to know each other um, and try and work together wherever we can. And I've had a lot of my uh, compatriots in other states reach out to me, regardless of where they're at in the in the numbers list, because everybody seems interested in, hey, even if we're in the top ten, how do we try and get ourselves to the lowest rate, right? So <clears throat> we've we've had a lot of that outreach, and and we're actually thrilled. Um, some of our final data results um, we're hoping to be able to release um, at the beginning of 2015, and that will be shared with other states because if they can benefit from it and we can potentially uh, save some kids regardless of where they're at, that's a win for everybody. I like that. I like that a lot. It would be interesting if we move those numbers along the curve down so that that 7.7 goes way down and that the one, the state that's the highest infant mortality and child accident fatality rate, uh, comes up at maybe just one per thousand. And then we say, wow, we've, we've lowered the rate for everybody. We've raised a survival rate and everybody wins. Thank you very much, Paul. Guess what? Let's talk about what's in your cup today. I can imagine with your sore throat, I bet you have something very soothing, Paul. So talk to me. What are you drinking or what do you wish you're drinking after the show, Paul? So my lovely wife, knowing I was going to be on a radio show today and had uh, <clears throat> had a sore throat, she made uh, she did some handmade lemonade uh, for me, um, which kind of makes me appreciate the fact. So my wife is from Panama, um, and so I've tried a variety of juices that probably most people haven't, right? Things that don't necessarily mm-hmm. typically grow in the U.S., um, I remember I lived there for a couple of years, and that's how I met her. And uh, the the one thing of all, of all things that scared me is I remember she gave me one. Uh, she gave me this one juice once, and we went and collected the fruit, and we put it in my car to take it back to to her house. And uh, she's like, "By the way, you need to triple bag this because you don't want this to leak on your car because it'll like it'll basically destroy your carpet." And I'm like, "Well, do I really want to drink this then?" <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I back and it was actually okay, but it was very acidic. And little did I know, until probably ten years later, right? We're married by then, and you know we have uh, a few kids. And and I finally caught on to the fact that you know that that fruit was actually um, is actually the same fruit that cashews come from. And I love cashews, right? It's very it's, most people don't realize it's a fruit that grows on a tree, and it's just a little nut that's kind of on the top of it. It's. Mm-hmm. Um, so she got me to try a lot of things that I would have never known about otherwise. So uh, I do appreciate the fact that she still cares enough to, to hand make me some lemonade this morning uh, uh, so I'd have something while I'm on the radio. That's lovely. And you said, and, uh, where are you based right now, Paul? Uh, I'm out of Indianapolis. So okay. she has tolerated our winners for the last uh, 18 <laughs> years very happily. She's um, a trooper. Uh, and she do you want to her two do- oceans. You want to give us her name and do a quick shout-out? Would you like to I do that? I would love to. Um, 
to Lisa Baltzell, I love you very much, and thank you very much for thinking of me, sweetheart. Aw, that's the first sweetheart love letter we've had on the radio in 300 shows. I'm glad. That should make you feel a lot better, Paul, just for you. Thank you. Charlie Brand, I can't ask you to top that story, but what are you drinking or what do you wish you were drinking, Charlie Brand? And where are you calling from today? Well, so I'm calling from Indianapolis as well, and um, I agree. That is a that is tough to top. That was, that was a great story, <laughs> uh, Paul. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, for me, um, I'm not drinking now, but later today, I hope to be drinking a uh, Sun King Osiris beer. So we have a local brewery here um, that has uh, done very well over, over the next, uh, last couple of years. So Indiana has emerged as a leader in the craft brew uh, beer market um, over the past couple of years, and Sun King is one of those breweries. Um, and so in addition to uh, in, you know, being a leader in the, in the craft beer market, I certainly hope that the uh, work that we're doing here allows Indiana to emerge as a leader from a data analytics standpoint. I think that uh, Paul Baltzell, uh, the OMB director, Chris Adkins, the governor, uh, Governor Mike Pence, have done an incredible job leading this effort. And so not only kind of emerging as a leader from data analytics, but it takes great leadership to put together a program like this mm-hmm. and then to make it successful. And, um, and so, um, you know, I feel honored to be part of the project, uh, proud to be in Indiana with this great leadership. And, uh, and so that is, uh, that is kind of my, uh, what's in my cup today. I love it. Thank you. It's shout-out day. And Tim O'Malley, what can I say? What are you drinking or who do you want to do a dedication to whom? So I am drinking some tea, and it happens to be warm tea, and I'll take this back to my childhood when I grew up in Chicago. Uh, My grandfather was a Chicago policeman back in the 30s, and I fondly remembered my grandfather drinking quite a bit of tea. At least at the time, I thought it was tea. And, um, you know, with the last name of O'Malley, obviously heavy Irish roots in my family. Um, and a few years back, I had the privilege of going to Ireland and actually meeting family, extended family over there that are still there in, in the area where my grandparents came from. And I learned pretty quickly that they drink, primarily drink three beverages. They drink tea. Uh, most always hot tea. They drink beer, a lot of beer, and a lot of times it's Guinness beer, and they drink whiskey. And mm-hmm. in visiting family and relatives, I found that they drink tea, and then they sometimes would add other, other beverages to the tea. And so um, I do enjoy a nice cup of tea, and I think it's something you can drink either hot or warm. And obviously if you're a little adventurous, you can mix things into it to make it a little bit more potent for you as well. And on our theme, Tim, we call that doctoring here in New York. You doctor your tea. And I think a really strong cup of tea is called Long Island Iced Tea, if you've ever heard of that. And it's not for kids, and it's not for the weak of heart or the weak of feet. But it might really help Paul today in addition to that lemonade. Guess what? You've all earned a break. I'm going to take us out on break. When we come back, we'll talk a lot more with Paul Baltzell, the CIO of the state of Indiana, Charlie Brandt, founder of KSM Consulting, and Tim O'Malley, president of Early 
Cents, Inc. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Tough topic today, the Internet of Things and life-saving innovations, lowering infant mortality. And who doesn't care about that? I know all of you do. We'll be right back after the break. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Michael, out. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Insights from totally new sources of data, sensors that capture and share what is happening in your business environment, and the tools to understand it and act on it. These are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. Internet of Things with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Internet of Things with Game Changers. Welcome back. This is Internet of Things with Game Changers, as the good man said. And our topic today, a really serious one, heavy duty, the Internet of Things, IoT, and life-saving innovations, lowering infant mortality. Everybody's affected, and it's important to find out what the state of Indiana is doing, not only to turn around their very, very high infant mortality and child fatality rate, however, to see what they're doing as a team effort, to see what they're doing in terms of putting the right people, the right mindsets, the right skills and expertise together, and tackling how the improvements and innovations available through the Internet of Things can help this effort and turn those numbers back in the other direction. I'm talking today with Paul Baltzell, CIO at the State of Indiana, Charlie Brandt, founder of KSM Consulting, and Tim O'Malley, president of Early Sense. We're ready to launch our roundtable. It's going to be about 25 minutes straight through. I know my panelists are ready. And let's start this party off with Paul Baltzell. I'm looking at the notes you sent me before the show, Paul, and here's where I'd like to start the conversation. We're talking about Indiana's efforts to reduce infant mortality and child fatality with data analytics. And you say, Indiana has collected 5 billion rows of data from a variety of agencies to identify correlating factors that contribute to the high infant mortality rate. That's a heck of a lot of data. How do you gather it? What do you do with it? How do you get insights from it? Talk to me, Paul. Well, so there's a lot of different challenges with gathering that data. So um, typically in government, there's a lot of silos between entities So that's the first challenge you have to overcome. And each entity, whether it be workforce development, Department of Revenue, 
um, family and social services, which would be our agency that, that administers Medicaid and welfare benefits and things along those lines, they have varying state statutes and federal rules about sharing that data. So that's the first challenge to overcome, right, is, is making sure that you legally cross all those boundaries appropriately um, and, and, and properly secure that data. And everyone who has access to it has, you know, kind of passed all the appropriate background checks and all the securities there um, mm-hmm. that you would want, right? So that's hurdle number one. Uh, hurdle number two is the technical challenge of moving that data from various systems um, of all types and manners into kind of a, a central system to process that. We chose SAP HANA as our solution with uh, kind of Lumira, with our Lumira product as our, as our presentation layer um, because they work together extremely well and, and, and they really um, hit what we needed. So as we bring that data in, there's that technical challenge I mentioned and, and, and the choice of solution you'd like to use to analyze it. And then you need to work with each of those business units to identify what exact data is, is really pertinent because the business experts on the ground, in a way, they kind of have a lot of that analytics in their head, right? I mean, if you've got a 20-year caseworker at Child Services, um, their brain's a phenomenal, um, phenomenal device, and it already knows a lot of these correlating factors, right? <clears throat> How do you translate that so everybody has that capability? So this is where I've got to give ch- kudos to not only some of my fantastic staff, but also to Charlie's guys um, who came in and, and worked with those guys, did the data science, um, created the algorithms um, and worked with the businesses to identify, you know, hey, these algorithms, they actually identify what we think they should identify and they make sense. Um, and it's, it's just amazing what he was able to do with that. Um, and so then once you take that, you show that to the business unit, what you've come out with and the kind of correlations you've found. And the, in most cases, the business units w- said, wow. Um, some of those things we expected to see, others we absolutely did not. But we, these ones that we see now, we didn't expect. We got to dig a little deeper, right? So people, people go, wow, I see new detail. What's going on over here? Why is this? So we even have to, in many cases, go collect more sets of data because, you know, we may identify we have a particular county that we wouldn't expect that has a higher infant mortality rate than others. And the reason it has a higher infant mortality rate is completely different from another county, right? Um, so, so it's a it's a bit difficult to say there's one solution for for each, if if that makes sense. Um, so the more we dig, the more um, more data sets you tend to want to get the detail and and find mm-hmm. the answers. Um, and then, of course, the long term goal is that data and those analysis will allow us to tailor programs to help a particular area with what really works there, right? Because if if in one area you need a lot of prenatal advice for mothers. Um, that may not be the exact solution that you need in a completely different region of the state or in a county or city. There it may just be a matter of access to the appropriate medical doctors, not not necessary, you know, prenatal education. Um, So you want to focus your money where it makes the most sense and where you get the most bang for buck. And if some programs aren't working at all, we should put Mm -hmm. that money in programs that are working in places that we can have an effect. So the data has been very, very powerful. Paul, how how many people are, are working on this all together? I'll just say under the, the paycheck or the employee of the state of Indiana, whether they're in-house or they're vendors, how big is the team? Because you have a gargantuan task in front of you, it seems. Yeah, so um, th- there's a lot of people that are partially involved, and then there, there are some dedicated folks. 
Um, the dedicated team is probably about 10 to 12 people, and mm-hmm. then there are folks, there are a per- small percentage of other folks who are, who are involved in this. Now, that dedicated team of 10 or 12 um, staff are also working on other analytics initiatives as well. So it's, it's, it's kind of hard to really say a number specifically on what they're doing because we have other things we're looking at that are that as we're bringing in the data that we can solve, you know, um, one of our next targets at some point is going to be recidivism. So, you know, offenders, how do we keep them from going back to, to, mm-hmm. to prison, right? So that's another problem we want to solve. Some of those initial um, business cases um, we're working on in conjunction and putting together the pieces before we get there um, and kind of just creating the data sets so we're ready when we're, when we're ready to tackle that challenge next. Does that make sense? Good. Yes, it does. Thank you very much. I'm just thinking how massive this all is and how much effort and, and commitment it takes. We've talked about that. Charlie Brandt at KSM Consulting. And by the way, thank you to KSM for joining us here on our Twitter feed. We're at hashtag SAP Radio. And we have Ira Burke from SAP, the IoT team, and KSM is our tweeting away all of these, these great words of wisdom from our panelists. Charlie Brandt, you want to talk about the topic that Paul introduced in terms of this massive amount of data to tackle? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think Paul's outline there was great in terms of laying out, um, you know, at the beginning about trying to understand from a policy and program perspective um, the influence that we can uh, make to affect the uh, infant mortality rate. And, And so the process of going through that is one where you have information and you ask questions and then you get answers, and then that leads to further questions. And so a lot of times what happens is you iterate through that process of not, you don't know all the questions that you need to ask up front. Um, it's really going through the process that leads to these uh, really informed, precise solutions. And so the technology stack, HANA with Lumera, and extensions to do mathematical algorithms like R have been really critical to being able to pull together these five billion rows and to ask questions, get answers, and then ask questions so that it's a continuous stream of activity. The difference, or what might have happened five years ago, is you would ask a series of questions and then two weeks later, you get those answers, and then you have to re-get mm-hmm. yourself oriented to the problem that you're trying to solve. What were those questions? Why did I ask those? What was I looking to get to? And so the technology has allowed this massive amount of data to be processed real-time, and so that the path of questions and answers can be accelerated to the point where, you know, the, uh, the work really gets to be uh, precise and targeted. Um, I think that in very short order across uh, the life of this project, we are already influencing the uh, dollars that are spent for programs uh, to be targeted, like Paul mentioned, where a specific county or a specific zip, zip mm-hmm. code we know has um, the type of um, problems that we can uh, utilize funds and, and, and target those specifically. And that will continue to, to grow uh, with, you know, kind of across the state with precision as this project goes to completion. Thank you, Charlie. Tim O'Malley, we want to hear from you on this. Thoughts about the big, big amount of big data? What's happening with it? Yeah, I think it's probably, you know, listening to Paul and Charlie and talking about the, the challenge of 
somebody that may have been in a position for 20 years and, you know, the data is residing with that individual, I think the same is true in other areas. And, and again, you know, just looking at healthcare, uh, because that's where I spend the majority of my time, it's very similar. You have people that are really excellent clinicians deliver, you know, phenomenal patient care for people but they're not necessarily used to data, using data, and using data to kind of modify future behavior. And I think that what's happening is there's, in healthcare, there's been just an enormous effort in the last few years to, you know, create data sets that can be looked at for future decision-making. And I think getting the people that are actually at the bedside comfortable with that transition between, you know, you know, manual data sets versus automatic data sets and what those data sets are going to mean for them in the future is, is a challenge as well. And I also think that, you know, one thing that I have seen is it's difficult to fix what you can't see, and it's very difficult to see what you can't measure. And so I think that is something that all of us have to keep in mind when we're looking at data is you have to understand what the data really means and how do you apply it in a forward-looking uh, go-forward strategy to help correct behaviors that may be impacting what you want to fix. Thank you, Tim. I, I want to talk about sensors. I want to get back to the core of our program is Internet of Things with Game Changers, talking about sensors and the idea of this this uh, connectivity. We're, we've established that there's a lot of data that it takes teams, it takes commitment, it takes knowing the questions to ask and knowing where to find the answers. Tim O'Malley, I'm going to go out of order here just a little bit. Uh, you are the president of Early Sense. Tell us a little bit about what is this Early Sense sensor-based, contact-free patient monitoring system. Without doing a plug, just tell us how does this level how are you leveraging the Internet of Things in this context? So our focus today is predominantly in the healthcare systems. In the future, it will also be in the home, um, and it will eventually be in the wellness environment in the home. And so it will have a lot of applicability with what we're talking about today, um, much more so in the future than even than we than we do today. But essentially, what we've created is a sensor that can be placed under a patient in a non-contact manner and the sensor is able to measure heart rate and respiratory rate as well as motion and even sleep patterns and behavior of a, of a person. And so if you're in a healthcare setting, that becomes very pertinent for measuring patients that might not be in, a, in an ICU or a higher acuity environment mm-hmm. um, who may not be measured on a continual basis, but now you have the ability because you really don't have to put any leads or sensors or cuffs or anything like that on the person, you can measure all of this through the mattress of a bed or through the cushion of a chair without physically touching the patient. And as you think about that in the home environment for, you know, an aging person that may not be well, they may have, you know, heart issues, they may have respiratory challenges, or they may be recovering from, you know, an orthopedic event, uh, you now have the ability to measure these people without a, a lot of intrusiveness between the machine and the person. And so as we look out, we look at this being something that becomes very applicable in a wellness setting for people that Mm -hmm. want to uh, manage their own behaviors, their own lifestyles, and, you know, measure themselves uh, to determine how well they're doing from a sleep uh, quality perspective, which is measured through heart rate, respiratory rate, variability measurements as well as motion and and things like exiting of the bed, 
through the night to do things like go to the washroom or, or get more comfortable with air temperature in your room. And the sensor will eventually become a integral part of all of that, hopefully, in people's homes. Thank you, Tim. Good explanation. I want you to tie it back to our topic today, talking about improving the infant, morta- infant mortality rates and accidental uh, infant fatality day- data in Indiana. My question is, is this useful in the case of SIDS? I mentioned this as one of the causes of these, these dire statistics coming out of Indiana. Sudden infant death syndrome. Hard for me to even say. Are these sensors able to help with keeping children alive through the night? Is there any applicability there? Yeah, I think it's early for me to say that, yes, it is applicable today. I think that it certainly has promise for that application because uh, we're able to measure very, very small changes in the cardiac and respiratory cycle of a person. Uh, and, again, it's it's really important that we understand that this is without touching the person. And so mm-hmm. uh, that becomes important because you want to make sure that it's it's a real application that's applicable in any environment. And so I think that over time this can become extremely applicable to an infant in a variety of, of situations that may be present and may be harmful to a person. Sounds very promising. Paul or uh, Charlie, you want to comment? I heard somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's me, Bonnie. Uh, can I jump in yeah. a little bit here? Sure. Um, I actually can tell you we um, – we met with uh, one of Tim's counterparts uh, of Early Sense um, at SAP Tech Ed last week, and mm. I was thoroughly impressed. Um, and we actually are engaging in some conversations on how potentially we could use their sensors even for pregnant mothers, right? So there's an opportunity to, to help the mother through, the, through those areas and, and even potentially in our state hospitals for adults as well, right? So we think there's a lot of power in this technology, um, and it could potentially help in a whole lot of areas. It's, it's, it's very exciting. It is very exciting and very promising. Yes, go ahead. This is Charlie. I will also add a comment that I think that, you know, the sensors uh, that that Tim is mentioning there, the aggregation of that data um, over time, um, when we talk about uh, pregnant mothers and infants, the uh, potential to be able to see outcomes, both positive and negative, from the behavior that happened with those sensors in aggregate across people will be invaluable as well. Yeah, and I, I can just add to that that we have today over 10 million hours of monitoring of people, and it's in a variety of settings. It's in the home setting. It's in the professional hospital kind of setting. And as I said earlier, one of our goals, you know, we've always been kind of a reactive healthcare system, and I'm, I'm applying mm-hmm. that word healthcare to even the home whether it's patients that are being treated uh, in an extended area like in the home or infants. Um, And I think that the goal that we have is to be able to take more and more of that data and start to really build strong predictive analytics around how we can give people early warning about a potentially adverse event, not after the event occurs. Because once an event occurs, then the patient typically or the person typically is going to be in acute phase, and it's mm-hmm. a much more difficult phase to get people out of. And so our goal is to try to be able to apply the data that we've collected and are going to continue to collect along with sensors that make sense in a non-contact way to help prevent some of these adverse events from ever occurring in the first place. Thank you. Any other comments on that? I have a question for the panel. Anybody else? 
So I would like to say one more yeah. thing. I, I can personally sure. kind of say I would have loved for this technology to be available when I had um, – so we had some, my wife and I had some challenges after our first child, we had kind of three pregnancy losses and mm. I, I feel okay talking about that because if it helps other people understand, then we, uh, the doctors kind of shotgunned and, um, we had our, our second child who, by the way, happens to be named Hana. SAP thought that was, uh, amazingly, <laughs> uh, amazingly serendipitous, I think is the word that was used. It's a um, beautiful name. <laughs> right, right. Um, but you know, it's almost like she was, I guess she was the first one, right? So, um, but a lot of the things with the monitoring, my wife would have to go to the doctor's office to be monitored during the entire pregnancy, and she would go multiple times a week, right? If if her doctor had this capability, we would have loved to have had that, um, so she would have never had to necessarily even leave the home other than to do sure. what she wanted to do, right? And the doctor would know, you know, how the baby's doing and things along those lines. It would have been, I, I would have loved to have that. I would have been more than glad to to pay, you know, out of my pocket, even if insurance wouldn't mm-hmm. cover it, for that convenience and that extra comfort of, of mind, right? That you're not worried about, hey, I'm not going in again till tomorrow. What's going on in the meantime, right? So... That's right. How am I doing, doctor? Right? Yes. And that, that's what the new technology is going to afford us. I have a question, and thank you for sharing that, Paul. I know that's a tough topic. Many of us have been through that, and it's, it's never easy to talk about. So th- thank you for that. Uh, question for the panel. We're seeing the emergence of a new category of knowledge worker, I think the term is, called the data scientist. Is this the type of opportunity to work on one of these teams, either whether it's with Early Sense or with KSM or with the state of Indiana? For, is this a, an emerging area where data scientists will be the ones who get what you're talking about, who know how to work the data, who know how to work with high speed and memory, and they just get it, they hit the ground running? Is this the desirable new entry point for careers in this type of a field. Paul, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I think um, <clears throat> there's going to be kind of not just one data scientist kind of mold they all fit into. Mm-hmm. There will be, you know, the, the hardcore math guys who who may or may not have um, the entire skill set top to bottom. <clears throat> and then I think there's also going to be some folks who can handle the, the, the more business analyst type goals who have some capabilities, but they're not necessarily going to be defining the algorithms. And then I think there's going to be kind of another group that I would almost term um, a business power user um, who who understands the, the capacity of what data analytics can do, but in some ways can kind of translate that to other folks who may not have as technical background. I would just to jokingly, I would equate that to if everybody's seen Office Space. I'm the guy who talks to the engineers because we don't want the engineer to talk to the customer. <laughs> so, okay. um, and, and we have folks who have capabilities across the spectrum, but you know, I think there's really going to be a need for folks along that entire um, entire along that entire arc. Interesting, Charlie or Tim, you want to make a comment before I, I go into one of Charlie's talking points? Anybody? Yeah, I, I would agree as well um, uh, with Paul's statement. Um, data is growing much faster, um, and uh, than than data than the data scientists that are being created right now, and um, and the um, amount of data that we're doing analysis on is getting smaller because the data is growing so fast, and so I think there's going to be a very large need for the data science, the data analyst uh, community um, Mm -hmm. in the next uh, five to ten years. 
Thank you. Yeah, Any I, other? And I think yep. There'll be there'll be people out there that, as Paul stated, kind of straddle between those different subsets as well. That you know are able to take the information from the data analyst or scientist and translate it over to somebody that may have to use something that's going to help create that data or a customer, as Paul stated. Okay. I have an important point here. Thank you all. Uh, in Charlie's notes that, that I think needs to be answered. It's a question talking about patient privacy and anonymity. Let me read the point. Charlie, you lead on this and then, well, we may just skip the break because this is too important to break. Uh, Developing a 360 degree view of an individual across disparate systems is a transformative opportunity, Charlie says. And he adds, doing so in a way that preserves the individual's privacy and anonymity is essential in today's society and doing so in a way that allows for future use of the information of the data is essential for insights. Let's talk about privacy. We're talking about the state of Indiana, got a big problem, very, very bad rate, infant mortality and child fatality. And all of a sudden we're looking at people saying, let us put sensors in your beds and let us do profiling and let us see who you are and how we can help you. But at the same time, you're identifying people. What about that elusive, it's very elusive today, quantification of privacy anonymity? Charlie, how do we do that? Um, yeah, so that, that's a great question, and um, because I think you're exactly right in the characterization, the uh, insights that can be gained to be able to predict behaviors so that these programs and policies and individual caseworkers can target their behaviors means that we have to be able to pull the individual data together so that we can say this person exists across these state agencies or these other uh, data sets and that we know their characteristics so that we can predict the behavior. At that point, then, the, uh, the data needs to be protected in a, in a, in a very significant way. Um, I'm going to ask Paul to chime in on this as well, but in the state of Indiana, um, we have uh, put together as we go through each of the state agencies and each of the data sets. There are a set of federal guidelines and state guidelines that Mm -hmm. protect each of those data sets. And so we have a data governance committee that has looked at what the intersection of all of those things are so that the data is protected from those standpoints. And then the state of Indiana has kind of gone over and above with a physical dedicated space as well as having the data in a uh, kind of protected row uh, that's separate from all other places that um, the, that the data center uh, has associated with it. Um, and then underneath that and inside the data itself, um, it's protected from being seen by um, all the people that are using it. So we have routines in there that allow the data to, to have two things happen at the same time. One is connect them so that Mm -hmm. an individual can be connected across these data systems and at the same time uh, protects all the private information uh, so that it can't be seen by uh, any of the users that that can't see the data. Thank you. Paul, want to talk? Yeah, so we've actually kind of built a secure room where you have to go in that room and you basically have to um, not use any device or anything like that that is not one that we've already placed in the room. Um, 
there's extra security around it, video cameras and things like that to ensure that, mm-hmm. you know, none of the private personal information gets out. Um, I, I like to say that I make them wear like the, the, the biocontamination suits so they don't get any data on them, right? So uh, <laughs> none of it walks out the door. Um, but there's another thing, and I think Charlie kind of even understated a little bit. The His uh, data scientist came up with a mathematical algorithm, and by the way, this math is so far above what I ever took. Um, it's well past my capacity um, to kind of hash the identity of someone so we can still, as he said, make a connection um, to say that this person would fit in this type of bucket and this is the sort of thing that would be of benefit to them if we're, you know, trying to find, you know, they're eligible for these benefits or their, um, this program would work to help them reduce their more, the infant mortality. However, it doesn't directly identify them by social and name and so on. That's all actually mm-hmm. hidden. Um, so it's, it's, it's an amazing mathematical trick that um, I, I was actually floored that they were capable of doing it. It's, it's very impressive work. So there you go, Charlie. You, uh, I guess your guys earned their money on that one. Um, what I would say is uh, it, it actually gives me, you know, a warm fuzzy because, hey, my, my data is one of those things that's in there as well, right? So I want to make sure that I protect myself, my kids, my wife, my friends, everybody I know here that's a Hoosier because, um, I mean, our stuff is in there just like everybody else's is. So we, we you know, we take it pretty seriously. And um, in some cases, I, I think I've irritated some people because I've I've gone so far to the security and privacy side. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the long run, it's actually paid off because um, the guys have come up some, I mean, really incredibly smart guys have come up with phenomenal solutions to kind of protect that um, because they were challenged to, to you know, to, to take that as an important role. So, um, it's 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 been phenomenal, and a lot of things we're doing, I think, can be taken and duplicated fairly easily um, in other states or other entities. So, um, so they can kind of put the same sort of securities and privacies and, prote- and protections in place. I'm applauding you, Paul. I am applauding you on behalf of everybody who worries about that. I want to talk about Indianapolis's Biomedical Center Park. I think I have that right. Built with Internet of Things in it from the very beginning. But I want to make sure we hear some more from Tim O'Malley. So, Paul, first tell us about the Biomedical Park, and then we'll have everybody go around. So, so to clarify there a little bit on that one, that is something that is is underway. It's not it's not completed yet, right? So, um, that's just at the launch phases. Um, some money from the state's been identified, and we're working with partners in the medical community, um, pharmaceutical community, as well as in the technical community to to kind of put all that together underneath, right? So, um, we're having d- discussions with major players. A lot of people don't realize. That Indiana is actually a center uh, of medical um, technology, you know. So there's companies like Cook, uh, Biomet, um, Eli Lilly, Roche Pharmaceuticals. There's a huge list of medical and pharmaceutical mm. companies that are placed out of here, and um, I and, and I may be incorrect on the stat, but I believe for orthopedics, we're actually um, we're actually number one in the world um, for the producing the most orthopedics. So that would be you know like. Um, uh, an arm or a leg or a prosthetic or, or any other mm-hmm. devices that would fall into an orthopedic area, whether it be something that goes in your knee or your hip or whatever. <clears throat> um, so we have a, a huge um, technology influx in that area, um, and it's kind of odd for it to be in the middle of Indiana because only people, most people think of us as just cornfields, right? So, mm-hmm, not um, anymore. We, Right, not anymore, but we want to leverage that um, and, and maximize the potential. So that is just underway, um, but we're very excited because the plan is for, from, the, from the ground up, 
you know, we want to have uh, the Internet of Things be part of that, sensors and, and you know, automated lighting and ways to share data um, from the from the beginning so that every everybody placed in that park can work together to solve medical problems. Thank you, Paul. I want to sneak in one more point. We're almost, we have six minutes left. I want to make sure we get our predictions from all three guests. But quick comment, Tim O'Malley, I'm looking, uh, talking about the, the spectrum of life. You say there are approximately 75 million baby boomers who are mobile. We, I'm one of them, understand technology. Yes, we do. We get it. And we're financially able to invest in our own well-being. And you talk about more solutions will be introduced in the future to enhance the boomers' ability to maintain an active lifestyle when dealing with or in preventing health challenges. Just Quickly, uh, just a one or two sentence comment, Tim, about about the application of innovations through Internet of Things for the boomers. We care about our boomers too, Tim. Yeah, I think uh, you know I'm a baby boomer as well, and I think that you know most things I've read is there's approximately 75 million of us, and there's 10,000 of us that are uh, you know turning 65 each, each day today as we go forward. <laughs> It's a big, it's a big number, and it's mm-hmm. going to be, um, our generation is going to be encouraged to be much more active in their own care as we get older. And I believe there's going to be a point in time in the very near future where, you know, we'll be able to use the tools that we use for other things, you know, smartphones, iPads, et cetera, uh, laptops, to help us manage our own health. Um, as you think about, you know, what happens as we typically age, you know, we we do get diagnosed with different types of issues. And, you know, you want to check, make sure that, again, mm-hmm. data kind of data checkpoint, you want to make sure that what your concerns are from yesterday are not getting out of control going forward. And so, you know, things like measuring glucose levels and body weight, uh, maybe heart rate, respiratory rate, sleep patterns, sleep quality, yep. uh, all those things I think become not just something we do in our own homes, but as we travel. Um, and it may have an impact on the results of what we're measuring. It may have an impact on what we do going forward. Thank you. Um, Tim, example, Tim, I have, to, I have to stop you. I want to do predictions. I'm going to give you your turn in just a second. We are down to four minutes till the end of the show. I'm so sorry, Tim. Forgive me. Paul Boltzell, give me two sentences of predictions, and we're going to go around the table fast. Go ahead. Paul? Okay, so um, my two prediction sentences. is... <laughs> yep. Sorry, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can. Please. Okay. So uh, I would say my quick prediction is that we're going to continue to see the growth of data, and eventually government is going to be effective in every area. So you will have one interface to work with government, and they will, from that interface, provide you all the benefits, um, all the licensing, all the permitting, um, everything you need in one simple way. And the ones that it's going to be tailored to you, so it's not going to bring you things that you don't need. Thank you very much. And let's turn to Charlie Brand at KSM Consulting. Two sentences, predictions, go. All right, two things. I think on the back end, the data silos will be broken down. And so all these disparate systems will um, will feed, and so we'll have those data silos breaking down so that we can aggregate and look at and have insights into data. And then that data is going to be delivered uh, to individual caseworkers and healthcare workers so that they can give individual diagnosis to people uh, to, to help improve their outcomes. Thank you very much. Tim O'Malley, two sentences, predictions, fast, go. Data is going to be used in building predictive algorithms and analytics for uh, treating patients before ma- 
massive adverse events occur, which put them into a much more acute phase. And I think that that will be across the continuum of care, whether it's an institution or in a person's home or in a person's daily life. I hear optimism afloat. I appreciate that very much. I want to thank my very special panelists. You guys were really cooking there. Paul Baltzell at the State of Indiana CIO. Paul, please feel better. You did great despite the sore throat. And shout out to your wife and all of your kids. Charlie Brandt, KSM Consulting. Thank you, Charlie, for contributing great insights. And Tim O'Malley at Early Sense. Keep up the good work. I want to do a shout out to our series sponsor. It's Darren Crowder. Congratulations on the promotion. He's a VP of IoT now at SA. Boy, that all rhymes. Darren Crowder, a shout-out to Ira Burke, who is supporting this show. And, Ira, you have been tweeting and tweeting and tweeting, and thank you so much, along with somebody at KSM Consulting is tweeting. So thank you to whoever that is. We appreciate it. And a shout-out to Malcolm Kimberlin at SAP as well and Michael and the Business Channel team. Uh, let's see. It's Wednesday afternoon. I did two shows today. Tomorrow morning I'll be back at 10 a.m. Eastern time with the – let's see we're doing tomorrow – Innovating Innovation with Game Changers. That's our Thursday morning series I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Here's your call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today and be healthy and do something about it. Talk to you tomorrow morning on Innovating Innovation with Game Changers. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.